Hello and welcome to the first 2019 episode of the RHS Gardening Podcast. I'm Guy Barter, Chief Horticulturist here at the RHS. As we sail forth into January, 2018 and its remarkable weather patterns are but a distant memory. But its impact on our plants and gardens continues to be felt and will have an effect on performance in the coming year. Later on, we'll hear our experts' assessments on the legacy of last year's winds, wet and droughts on plants, pests and diseases in 2019. With a lovely Christmas break behind me, I'm looking forward to spending more time in the garden on sunny days, getting things ready to start sowing and planting later in the spring. I'm clearing up rubbish, turning compost heaps, tidying the shed, ready to get gardening as soon as the weather turns round later on. But first, let's join our resident RHS gardening advisors to tackle your first batch of horticultural questions this year. Happy New Year. I'm here with Tony Dickerson, Jenny Bowden, and I'm Lee Hunt, and we're from the gardening advice team here at Wisley. Hope you had a good gardening break over Christmas. On that topic, uh, did either of you get any gardening jobs done? Yeah, I did actually. I really like doing gardening jobs at this time of year because it tidies things up. I mean, I'm not normally a tidy person, but I do like to look out at things that have been chopped back. I don't know what the wildlife thinks about it. I've left some things. I've left the grasses at the moment, but it's just so nice to be able to chop back the herbaceous plants and see a bit of bare earth. Did you get down the allotment, Tony? Well, I always look on the, the Christmas holiday period as an opportunity to get the allotment sorted, any jobs that just didn't get done in the autumn, and a good opportunity to clear the site and uh, hopefully get ready for later in the spring. If nothing else, soil might be too wet to work or whatever, but you can clear any rubbish, clear weeds, and at least get say, everything sorted out so that when the weather improves, you can get straight on. I was fulfilling a Christmas present that I'm always asked to give by my mum, which is to go down to the allotment and prune the blackberry, which is simply cutting out the old canes and tying in the new ones onto the frame. But it's something she likes to see done ready for the new year. So let's crack on with the questions. We've got an email from D Cook. What can I plant for winter colours? Not corners, he says. More flowers than stems, please. It's all a bit bleak in January and February. Well, what could we suggest? I'm going to suggest one which I just love so much, and that's mimosa. Or acacia is its uh, botanical name, but most people will know it's mimosa. Not just for the fantastic yellow flowers, which festoon it in great plumes of yellow flowers, but they're scented. And you, you're just walking along, you're, oh, where's that wonderful smell coming from? Uh, so they're not small plants. See, we are talking about a tree, but they, this particular one, uh, I would recommend Acacia dilbata is one that grows well in most places in, in the British Isles. Go for more sheltered. Most of the time they're fine, but every now and again, if we have a cold winter, it will see them off. But certainly in the southeast, around seaside areas, in many towns, um, you will be able to grow that. Do need some space for it, but acacia dealbata is prunable. So although I wouldn't recommend it for a pot, you can prune it to keep it within bounds. And I do recommend keeping it within bounds as it grows because it is a very enthusiastic plant. So that would be my top one, I think. Well, if you're not on a chalky soil, at the top of the list, I think, would be witch hazel. Fantastic. You know, even in the dead of winter, despite hard frost or whatever, 
you're going to get a tremendous flowering performance for sometime in late January into February or whatever. Unfortunately, not only does it need slightly acidic soil, but they can be quite spreading. But if you've got the room, that would certainly be my top choice. Mahonias, of course, ideal where space is much more limited, generally quite upright, evergreen shrubs with holly-like foliage, but much larger, of course, and bright yellow flowers that, again, early in the year, so attractive and uplifting to the spirit. And I suppose for a little bit later on, Daphne's, again, nothing to beat the both the flowering performance, but also the scent there. And I, I guess there's also, Lee, a, a few flowers, a few perennials. I mean, what could people be looking at? Certainly some of the hellebores or Lenten roses uh, will start to flower quite early on. It's often a little bit more into February, but um, I'm noticing now that some of the varieties are definitely earlier than they, they were. And they come in such a range of colours as well. So right from white to black through to apricot colours now and greens and yellows. So I just think, you know, really buy the best you can afford. Let them self-hybridise because they will seed quite happily. They, they do this amazing thing where they will, the seed will fall the one year and then it'll pop up the next spring. So you'll often have a rash of seedlings and it's just almost giving them the space or moving them on. So uh, they might be expensive, but I do think they, in terms of the seedlings, give you more and more. Also bulbs, the earliest bulbs. So iris, little baby, baby bulb irises. Uh, there's one called George, which is a dark, dark violet. And uh, George flowers very early in the season. And uh, there's narcissi, which are starting to come as well. Things like February gold, which sometimes do flower earlier than February. So lovely way to start the season. Marianne Flowers from Romford in Essex. I'm growing Brussels sprouts for the first time. Do I have to remove the yellow leaves? I've had conflicting advice. Well, I think we've got a resident sprout grower. So, Tony, what do you think? Well, not necessarily, as they'll just fall to the ground on their own. But I think it's good to get in there occasionally, remove the yellowing leaves. Sprouts are big plants, so you want a nice bit of airflow around them. And it gives you a chance just to have a close inspection. You might obviously be harvesting full steam ahead, but sprouts are often affected by mealy aphid and uh, also you can get problems with things like white blister and so on. So I often do a spray of something called SB plant invigorator, which isn't really an insecticide or a fungicide, but it's a oily substance you spray on the plant. It suffocates the pests. It creates a barrier that restricts the spread of disease. And uh, a few sprays of that over the winter, indeed starting in the summer and just regular periods simply helps to keep the sprouts in good condition and I suppose the other thing that's important that being big plants if you're on a windy site either a piece of windbreak netting on one side almost certainly you might have to net them if you're anywhere other than some of the big cities where pigeons will be a big problem but again staking the individual plants also very useful just to make sure that they're not blown over in the gales. If the sprouts now haven't formed or made a good size will they carry on growing? Yes, a lot of the modern F1 hybrids, the sprouts tend to develop quite quickly together. I mean, what I tend to do, if you've already harvested, you will have done this, but if they're a late variety, I tend to pick off the lower sprouts, which often don't seem to want to develop. They just remain rather small. And uh, I think it's rather than the plant wasting energy on those, I clear those away and they can go on in the compost heap or whatever. And then that allows you easy access to the the really prize sprouts developing up the stem. 
Ben Anderson's emailed in. Does cold help break up the soil and condition it? Or is this a myth to get gardeners out of the house in the winter and onto their allotments? Are there other useful jobs to do in January and February? So, Tony, is it a myth about digging to break up the soil in winter? Well, certainly frost will break up the soil. And uh, I suppose on heavier clay soils, it's very traditional to dig in the autumn, just throwing the soil loosely up so that over the winter it would break down so that uh, towards the end of winter you break over and produce what we call the tilth, which is this very fine surface, which is ideal for sowing seed into. So what's actually happening to that clay soil in the, the winter? Well, what's happening, clay normally is very sticky, compacts and so on, because it's made of very small particles that literally cling together. But the action of frost, of course, is that it makes the water within the soil expand, forming ice, and then, of course, it melts. And if you get that over a period of days, weeks, months, it simply breaks up the clay. It tends to be rather temporary. So you often need to keep off a clay soil in the wetter weather because otherwise you'll do more harm than good. And if I had to dig a clay soil over the winter, I'd always work from a scaffolding board or a piece of wood so that your weight is taken by that and you're not compacting the soil. Of course, the other option with soils is not to dig them at all, but to follow something called no dig, where the soil is covered with initially a 10 centimetre, four inch layer of manure or garden compost. Ideally in the autumn, as that rots down and decays and weathers, you can then sow into that. And uh, a lot of gardeners are now increasingly moving to no dig. It appears a very productive system and it's big advantage if you're not turning over the soil, you don't bring up weed seeds. So um, one thing that I think gardeners, if they are a traditional gardener and they follow digging regimes on allotments and vegetable plots, you might actually find investigating no dig uh, could open up a whole new world of vegetable growing. Well, thanks for your time this week, Jenny and Tony. Thanks, Lee. That was fun. Thanks, Lee. The RHS Gardening Advice Team at Wisley in Surrey. You can find links to more information about the topics discussed in this podcast on our programme page at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. RHS members can ask the expert team for free advice on any gardening problem by phone, email, by letter or even in person at RHS shows. Just one of the many benefits of joining up. Two thousand and eighteen was a tough year for gardens and gardeners across the UK, both amateurs and professionals. Unpredictable and unexpected weather events decimated some crops and produced abundant yields in others. One of the nice things about the glorious summer weather in twenty eighteen in my garden and allotment was that it was a very hard time for slugs and weeds. So here we are, twenty nineteen, growing season approaches, and remarkably few slugs and weeds. The other thing I've done a lot of since the rains fell last August is to sow cover crops. These are crops that uh, you sow very thickly. I'm using Italian ryegrass. Other people use mustard, for example, that suck up all the nutrients from the soil and hold them in an insoluble form, ready to feed the crops in 2019. One of the lessons from last year was that the plants that were sown early and got their roots down into the soil where the moisture was lurking did much better than ones sown late. So I'm preparing the ground and getting everything ready to sow seeds as early as I can, perhaps as early as late February, weather permitting, things like onions and carrots and lettuces. 
It's an interesting fact that 50% of a crop's potential is actually put into the ground before the seedlings emerge. So it's well worth spending time on getting the ground ready. We've had a really good winter of wonderful flowers, showing that the droughts last year actually benefited a lot of plants. But that might not be true of all things. The effects on some plants where buds or seed production was hit may be felt even more this year. We spoke to members of several RHS teams to hear how 2018 was for them and how this may affect the way they garden in future. Hi, I'm Bernard Boardman. I work for the edibles team here at Wisley. My main area of responsibility are the vineyard and I help look after the orchard. Everybody's been talking about the weather, so I'm going to join in with that one because we had a very cold winter and that was actually very good for our fruit trees because it meant they had a proper dormant spell. And then the really good thing that happened was that once everything started to grow, it kept growing. We didn't have the late frost that we'd had in 2017, so our blossom wasn't damaged by the frost and the flowers in the vineyard weren't damaged by the frost. So everything had a nice pollination period and that led to us having really good crops in the orchards and in the vineyard. In retrospect, maybe we shouldn't have allowed our vines to have such a big crop. We might have been better off had we realised how long it was going to go on for. We probably would have been better off to have thinned the grapes down so and gone for maybe a little bit more quality and not the bulk but it's something that really surprised us and caught us out. So there's a few little lessons to be learned. Hello my name is Jane Rotherham and I am working here at Wisley on the edibles team as the student specialist for the year so I'm placed with the team for a year to learn how to grow the fruit and veg. I just love being in the orchard it's just a really nice place to be it's not something I've had a little bit of opportunity to do in the past but I just love the feel of being out there and working with trees and also just the opportunity of being in a team of just knowledgeable people. Previously I was at Harlow Carr on a different student placement where I grew an allotment plot this summer which was pretty good and my success of that was my basil I think because everyone was like you're not going to grow very good basil up here in North Yorkshire but then it was pretty cracking summer and it worked really well so I had it like for my lunch all the time it was great <laughs> we'll be looking deeper into the effect the summer drought had on plants and planting in the february issue of the garden magazine as well as in an upcoming edition of our sister program the garden podcast see rhs.org.uk forward slash the garden podcast for more and it's not just plants of course our entomology and plant pathology teams have been assessing the possible influence of the climate on wildlife, pests and diseases. Hello, I'm Matthew Cromie, one of the plant pathologists at the RHS based at Wisley. This year's main problems have tended to arise related to the hot, dry summer we've had, so almost everything tends to come back to what we had there. So, for instance, on leaves, we have had a lot of samples coming into the lab from members of leaves showing various sorts of symptoms in most cases, those symptoms have been just due to the weather, not due to disease. So it hasn't really been that high a disease year for the above-ground parts of plants. We do see a bit more powdery mildew than usual because powdery mildew is one fungus that likes reasonably dry conditions. So that's been there, but mostly general stresses. 
The other thing we've seen above ground has been relating to the problems below ground. Obviously, a hot, dry year is going to result in problems with root systems to some extent. So we've had quite an upsurge just recently in the numbers of inquiries on honey fungus. That's not because honey fungus is necessarily any worse than the roots in a hot, dry year. What it's really relating to is that we've got a root system that's compromised already with root disease. Then a hot, dry year, just the tree or shrub can't get enough water up into the above-ground plant, starts to die back. And so we're getting a lot of samples coming in now as the end result of that. Tied in also with the hot, dry year is establishment issues. So people have bought their new plants, they've planted them. Quite often they just thought they've watered them enough, but they haven't because it's just been so hot, so dry, they need really regular watering. So quite a lot of plants that are only a year, two years old have been dying back with problems due to that. So that's not a disease issue, it's really watering. And in some cases people say, oh, but I've watered a lot. In some cases people are probably watering too much, so things can get waterlogged. So finding that right balance in a, in a hot, dry year is important. Regular water, but allowing it to drain away again. One or two other issues that have cropped up, for instance, bitter pit and apples as a disease we tend to see in dry years. So if the apple tree can't get enough water, then the, you get the bitter pit inside the apple's fruit. So most of what we've been seeing this year have tended to be abiotic or not disease, so environmental or physical, that sort of thing. Going forward, I mean, the environment's changing, seasons are changing, we get hot, dry years, we might get wet, hot years, we might get wet, cold years. So every year is going to be a little bit different, and trying to cope with those as they arrive is important because we will increasingly see that with climate change. I think largely being ready for any environment so is important. So growing the right plant in the right place. Don't grow things that are pretty marginal sometimes, or be very careful how you grow them. Be aware that in a, in a dry year, some plants will need some extra water. Um, encourage good growth in them, so establish them well, and then they should still do pretty well. The other thing you tend to see is that every year is different. So one of the problems that we have is that you get a flow on from one year to the next year. A bad disease year one, one year will carry through for several years, and a low disease year can change quite rapidly. So uh, every year will be different. For 2019, I think gardeners just need to be aware of what the weather does over the next two or three months, because that's going to determine what's likely to turn up. If we have a wet year around the time of blossom, then blossom wilt, fire blight, some of those sorts of diseases are likely to be more serious. So keep an eye out for those, because some of those ones you can actually prune out reasonably quickly and carefully. So watch out for those. If it's a wet year, then bacterial canker can be more of an issue, and that can be present as a foliar or, or as a blossom disease, but it can also cause cankering in the trees. So uh, trying to cut that out early on is going to help. So I think just being aware of how the year goes, because that's going to determine really what the problems are next year. Hello there, it's Andy Salisbury here, a uh, principal entomologist for the RHS. An entomologist is somebody who studies insects, but in reality is for the RHS work, it involves everything from rabbits and deer right the way through to nematode worms. And we even cover things like wood lice and all sorts of creatures other than insects. Some of the main things that have come in are things like box tree moth, which has really taken off. For instance, in 2017, we received a total of about two or 3,000 records of the moth. Last year, we received 5,000 records. Now, this is a moth whose caterpillars will feed on box, and they feed under a webbing. It has two generations a year in the UK currently, and it can completely strip the plants. It arrived in the UK in 2011, 
and has since become very common in the London area and a few surrounding areas where it is completely stripping box plants, leaving them covered in a webbing. This year, we also received records of the box tree moth caterpillars from North Wales, the Midlands, particularly the Coventry and Birmingham areas, and towards the end of the year, we received reports from both Northern Ireland and the Republic. So it is now becoming a widespread problem, much more than just southeast England. The moth itself is quite an attractive moth. It has a wingspan of, of about two and a half centimetres, three centimetres, so that's just over an inch. It's white and it has brown edges to the wings. The caterpillars are green and black. They feed in large numbers together. They get up to about two and a half centimetres long. That's an inch again. Generally having two generations a year. In mainland Europe, however, it's been found to have several more generations a year, about four or five in some cases. Uh, fortunately, this hasn't happened here yet. And that was despite the warm weather we had this year. I think we all noticed that 2018 was a, a lovely warm summer. And as of that, you might expect that we'd see some differences in the insects that have occurred and, and some of the numbers. We didn't actually see too many trends in that way, but one insect that did stand out for us is something called the Southern Green Shield Bug. Now, this uh, true bug, shield bug, it is shield shaped like many of our shield bugs, is a native to Southern Europe. The adult insect looks very similar to our own native green shield bug. And both species, both the native green shieldbug and the southern green shieldbug, feed on plant sap. I don't think Anna should be concerned about this one yet, because even though we did see more of it this year, again, it was late in the season. So this is an insect that is a problem in southern Europe, where it breeds a lot faster and is there in large numbers from the beginning of the season. In the UK, it seems to be there in low numbers at the beginning of the season, building up to slightly more late in the season, by which point most of our crops are going over, and so it's unlikely to cause much damage. So in the science team, we're looking forward to 2019 now. Uh, and hopefully over some of the coming podcasts, you'll hear about some of the slug research we're doing. Uh, we have a PhD student and other research projects looking into slugs and snails, which species are in gardens, how the biocontrols work, and generally so we can improve that advice. A little hint here is that not all the slugs you find in gardens are probably causing damage. And we want to find out which ones are and which ones aren't. And you'll hear from the PhD student in a future podcast. We continue to monitor for various pests and look out for new pests via the advisory service. And the plant health team as a whole, which I am part of, is hoping to continue to help improve the way that plant health is taken forward in the, in the UK, uh, informing gardeners what they can do about their pest problems and also what they can do to encourage wildlife in their garden and those things which don't cause problems and the beneficials, the predators and the parasites. And also improving the way that what's called phytosanitary controls, which is reducing the imports of pests and diseases into gardens, are carried out and put forward both to government at RHS shows and in the home garden as well. Tune into our February podcast to hear analysis and final figures from our science teams confirming the top 10 garden nasties, the most problematic pests and diseases afflicting gardens in 2018. And finally, 2018 was a fabulous year for RHS flower shows and a year which also saw plenty of change and innovation. 
I was lucky at Chelsea to work with Matt Keatley and the NHS on the RHS Feel Good Garden, running a competition to find an eventual home for it, won by Highgate Mental Health Centre in Camden and Islington. Later on in the year, we relocated this garden to its new site in this mental health centre where it's looking fabulous. Also, our podcast team became show debutants as we took to the stage to record live podcasts with a panel of experts, fielding visitors taxing gardening queries at Chatsworth and Tatton Park shows. These podcasts proved so successful, we're doing more this year. At Cardiff on the 12th of April and at Chatsworth Flower Show, why not come and be part of it? We met the show's development manager to hear some of her highlights. Hi, I'm Catherine Potsides, the Head of Shows Development for the RHS. We're here today at Vincent Square, where we plan all the uh, things that are going to happen at the fabulous shows in 2019 and beyond. So one of the big standout memories was, in fact, at Tatton Park Show right at the end of the season. I was there one morning and looking up at our gorgeous sunshine field of Rebecca flowers. We put mass plantings in at all of our shows, Chatsworth, Hampton and Tatton Park this year. And in amongst this gorgeous sort of field of yellow flowers, I saw this little girl running around and giggling outrageously as if she was having the time of her life. And it made me realise what joy plants can really bring to someone's life and what wonderful experiences there are for shows of all ages. It's really great to see young people getting inspired by horticulture. A lot of us have happy first memories, joyful memories of being in the garden with our families, with our friends when we were young. That's how I got into gardening. So it's wonderful to see that the shows can inspire people in that way. So we have our April spring launch show here in the Linley and Lawrence Halls at Vincent Square. It's going to be an opportunity to hear about what's coming up in the show season. We're hoping to have some talks with garden designers who are going to be at the shows, as well as some of the best plant nurseries and also some beautiful orchid displays. So we're having an orchid show at the same time. There will be an element to urban gardening. Obviously, we're here in London and one of the highlights of last year was our fabulous urban gardening show here, which really showed what passion people really have for bringing plants into their homes and also into small spaces that uh, perhaps a balcony perhaps a windowsill it's amazing to see how many people are interested in plants and wanting to learn from our growers so we're hoping to bring elements of that to the london show in april so we obviously move on fairly quickly after our show here in London to another city centre location. Uh, so we go to beautiful Butte Park, which is right in the heart of Cardiff. It's a fabulous show every year. We have this year got the regeneration gardens. So we're supporting uh, designers who are recently graduated from a garden design course and hoping they will take this idea of regeneration as inspiration for their show garden designs this year. We're going to have a lot more talks and demonstrations at the show, including floristry demonstrations for people to pick up some take-home ideas. Quite quickly after Cardiff, we move on to Malvern, another lovely setting in the Malvern Hills. It's a beautiful show um, we'll be celebrating all the best that spring has a huge uh, focus on talks and demonstrations there's going to be a big talks theater with lots of gardening um, names available to learn about garden design plants whatever you fancy really and there's a new garden design competition for this year where there will be garden designers collaborating with interior designers so indoor outdoor planting so really seeing what you can do in an indoor space with plants as well as the garden immediately outside so it's quite an exciting new competition there for Malvern and for visitors to take away something that they might use in a smaller space.
At Chatsworth next year, we are hoping to greet visitors and wow visitors with a huge tree feature. We're going to be getting lots and lots of trees in. Uh, we're going to be highlighting the benefits of being in amongst trees. Um, and so that's going to be a huge focal piece in the centre of the showground next year's show. We've then got the fantastic Hampton Court Palace Garden Festival. We'll be having a fantastic new main stage full of talks, demonstrations. It's going to be all about experience at Hampton. There's also some fantastic garden designs coming in as ever. And we all end up in July at Tatton Park. We're hoping to focus on young and emerging talent. Our young designer contest has taken place at Tatton Park for the last 10 years and uh, we'll be coming back again in 2019. We're looking for the best young designers at the moment. They will be mentored through the design process and bring their creations to life at Tatton Park. It's always one of those highlights for me. We've also got a lot of school gardens coming in and a further sort of focus on education with demos in the Greenfields area. We'll be having mass plantings again for everyone to enjoy a riot of colour at Chatsworth, Hampton Court and Tatton Park. Shows Development Manager Catherine Potsides. Download our podcast in February when exciting details of this year's headline-grabbing RHS Chelsea Flower Show will be revealed. But you don't have to wait till show season for a great gardening day out. There are plenty of events to enjoy this month, including some delightful art exhibitions at RHS Gardens. So we've got textiles, prints and photography at Rosemore in Devon, holographic floral artwork at Wisley in Surrey, and historic Japanese artworks at Harlow Carr in North Yorkshire. These are all free with normal garden entry. Links to details of these events and others are on our programme page. Well, I'm afraid that's it for today's RHS Gardening Podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, from me, Guy Barter, and the podcast team, goodbye. <laughs>